Our reading this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 5, reading from verse 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to him for it this morning. Over the last couple of weeks, the death of Prince Philip has reminded us all yet again that we are a frail people. Even in someone's life who was so marked by strength and resilience, someone whose longevity extended all the way to 97 years, still comes to an end. Our lives come to an end. We die. However, we live in a society that wants to hear and see nothing of death. We have a funeral and then move on as quickly as possible. However, it's a reality we all face. And in our passage this morning, Paul draws that painfully to our attention. In verse 12 through to 21 of Romans chapter 5, we're reminded that death marks us all. It's a result, Paul says, of sin entering into the world. This doesn't mean that you die or get really sick because of some specific sin you have committed. It means that when sin entered the world through Adam, death came with it to all of Adam's children, us included. When Adam sinned, because he is our ultimate father, we receive from him that inheritance. In the 1689 London Baptist Confession, we read, By their sin, our first parents lost their former righteousness, and their happy communion with God was severed. Their sin involved us all, and by it death appertained to all. All men became dead in sin, and totally polluted in all parts and faculties of both body and soul. Now that doesn't seem fair in some ways, does it? Adam did something before any of us were born, and yet we have to pay the price. This is called, in more technical terms, federal headship. 
the head of our family does something on our behalf and we all have to deal with its consequences. And we don't think this sounds very fair, by and large. However, in a moment we'll see why it's actually essential that this is the way things work. We are sinners because Adam was. It affects us all just as children inherit traits from their parents, so we inherit this from our first parents. And even though we might live mostly upright and honourable lives, we are still sinners. Paul tells us that in this passage. Not all people have the law to tell them what sin really is, he says. But lest we think people won't be subject to sin and won't be judged for it just because they didn't have the law, all men and women die, don't they? Paul's making sure the Gentiles in the church in Rome don't feel that they can wriggle out of their need for a saviour under the idea that, well, what they didn't know couldn't hurt them. The Jews had the law and they should have known better, and the Gentiles didn't know any better, so they should be innocent, right? Well, wrong. Even in our own law, in our own lands, ignorance of the law doesn't excuse you from its penalty. It doesn't mean it's okay for you to break it just because you didn't know it was there. You can plead in court all you like that you didn't know it was against the law to impersonate a police officer. But if you put on a police officer's uniform and stroll down to a busy junction on Alderstone Road and start directing the traffic, you will be arrested and you will be charged. You will come under the penalty of the law. You might have had no idea that it was an offence to do that. And yet that isn't an excuse in most countries, ours included. And it's no excuse in the Bible, Paul says. The Gentile world doesn't have the law, but they still die. They still are as much a group of sinners as the Jews were. Paul wants them to know this, wants them to know they all face death together because they're all Adam's children. And there is no way out of this situation, is there? If sin and the death that goes with it comes from someone in the past and we can't change that, how can we ever address sin in our lives today? The fact that we all die should make it fairly easy for us to address the subject of death, shouldn't it? But we're so weird about that one subject. Fear of the unknown doesn't seem to be the total answer, although it may play a part. Many people today are either religious and have definite ideas about what happens to you when you die, but there are also a great many equally Religious atheists, we might say, who are very confident nothing happens to you when you die. Everything simply stops from your perspective. I think part of the reason that we seek to put death away from our minds isn't that we're worried about the unknown. It's that death comes along with something else. It comes along with sin. It is the consequence of sin, Paul tells us. The two are bound together and we're ashamed of our sin. We constantly try to cover it up because it shows us our weakness, our failure, our lack. Sin is most fully embodied in death and our death shames us because it exposes our lives as being small and temporary but also sinful. It makes us look weak. It makes us look feeble because there's nothing we can do about it. We can't overcome it so it's best to avoid it altogether. But this is the last thing we want to do. We must face the general concept of death, but also our own impending death and realise that it demonstrates something about us that is shameful, 
that we are part of a failed, sinful people who deserve to die, Adam's race. And that needs to be addressed. And Paul has great news for us in this passage. It is addressed. We find that although death marks us all, the free gift of life is given to us in Christ in verse 15 through to 17. The solution to the problem of death is revealed here where Paul tells us that Jesus offers sinful people the free gift of life. Now we know how he does this. Paul's already told us in previous weeks in Romans, hasn't he? Jesus dies our death on the cross. In taking our place, our sins are paid for and we are given the life that Jesus deserved. To put it the way Paul does here, we are first born into Adam's family, inheriting the things that belong to his family, sin and death. And when we confess our sins and trust in Christ, we are adopted by him and are now in his family, inheriting the things that belong to his family, which is life. It sounds like a straightforward exchange, doesn't it? We ought to die because of our sins. Jesus takes our sins and dies in our place. We have a debt and Jesus pays the amount due, so we're set free. And here's why I said that federal headship was so important just a few moments ago. Yes, all die in Adam, and that seems unfair. However, in the same way, all who cast themselves on Christ will live because of his one death in our place. His one death for us all. We don't have to die to pay for our sins. The death of one man, Paul says, is enough for all the sins of every Christian man or woman. Because he has become our head, just like Adam was. And this is exactly the point that Paul is striving to make. One death can only be enough for millions, billions of people, if that death is the head of our family, and we all face the consequences of being in that family. And in this case, that means the payment for our sins and a new upright life with God that lasts forever. Many die in Adam, Paul says, but many more will be given life by Christ. He says the grace of Jesus abounds for us. More than that, Paul emphasises it by saying that death and judgment follows Adam's one sin, but Jesus' one sacrifice for our many thousands of sins over the course of our lives is sufficient for the whole sorry lot. That is to say, we have a debt of £100 and Jesus' payment for our debt totals millions. He more than pays for any debt that we have. His grace is more than sufficient for any and all sins that we will ever commit. It's a little bit like somebody being given the task of putting out a campfire and deciding to do so not with a bucket of water, but with an entire loch's worth of water. How thoroughly is that campfire going to be put out? It will never be lit again. You'll never be able to find it again. And that is the case with our sins. If we cast ourselves on Christ's mercy and receive the free gift of forgiveness, right standing with God, a new life goes with it. Our sin that we couldn't sort out because we inherited it from Adam is defeated. It is completely wiped away and the slate is clean. Because the grace of Jesus abounds towards us, we can therefore have confidence that our sins have been forgiven if he says they have been. 
Now, we're still going to struggle with sin, but Jesus knew that, and that's why his grace abounds towards us, i.e. it never runs out, because our struggle with sin will be ongoing until the day we die. There is grace sufficient for us, so we need never fear that we will out-sin the mercy of God. Christ's grace is always enough. We can not only have confidence in our relationship with Christ, but we're driven to worship, aren't we? Paul tells us that the gift of righteousness will now reign in our lives instead of sin and death. We will now want, slowly but surely, to do the things that please God because we are constantly, daily amazed at how good our God is. He leaves us in no doubt that we are forgiven, that we will always be forgiven and that we will always be free. Death to us is now only a reminder of what we once were but have now left behind. And it is the means by which we enter into God's presence. This is why Paul agonises in Philippians about whether it would be better for him to die and go to be with the Lord or to continue on in ministry for a few more years to serve the Lord in this life. Death doesn't mean to him now what it once did. It's no longer a mark of defeat. It's no longer a a signifier of shame for him anymore. It's something to be passed through completely on his way to something far greater than he could ever know in this life. And the same is true for us. Death does mark us all, but the free gift of life is given to us in Christ and this free gift enlivens everything in us, verses 18 to 21 tells us. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Paul says, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, this isn't Paul saying all people everywhere will be forgiven because Jesus has died. It sounds a bit like that, but that's not what he's saying. He's comparing two groups, those who are the family of Adam and those who are the family of Christ. All those in Adam's family die But all those in Christ's family who've received his sacrifice, as he says in verse 17, have life. This means that people from all over the place can and will be saved by Jesus, people like you and me. And from Paul's perspective, this means not just Jews in Jerusalem, but Gentiles also. Even Gentiles who maybe previously persecuted Jews in Jerusalem or Rome or wherever it might be. Equally, salvation is not just for civilised Roman pagans. It's not even for people from Elyburn, but from those from Ladywell too. Imagine that. This means that as we go out with the gospel, we do so to all people because we know it doesn't matter who they are and where they come from. They are all children of Adam. They have all inherited death from him and they need that death to be addressed. And if they turn to Christ, they will receive the free gift of life from him. He has done everything necessary for their salvation. So we can go about mission work with great enthusiasm, knowing that Jesus has already accomplished everything necessary to save the people we are speaking to as we share the gospel with them. Indeed, Paul says there will be a great many of these people, and we are included in that, And I think it's a shame so many of us grew up in churches that taught us everything is getting worse in the world and in the church. And things will just continue to decline over the years until Jesus arrives and sorts the whole mess out when he returns. Because this is so often not the way the Bible talks about the church, about the kingdom of God in the world. 
Quite often in Jesus' own words, never mind coming into the book of Romans, we find that the kingdom of God is to be something small that starts out small but grows massively over time and becomes a mighty thing. Now, this is not mighty by the standards of the world, certainly. It's not necessarily something that will be militarily powerful or politically well-connected or um, will be incredibly rich and, and affluent. But nevertheless, the kingdom of God will grow into something truly significant. Just as through one man many die, Paul says, through one man, that is Jesus, many will be made righteous. Many. Do you believe that? Or have we bought into the idea that it will be an impossible uphill slog to see sinners saved? And probably no one will anyway when we share the gospel with them because we've done so for many years and we haven't seen much fruit. Well, there are many people in Ladywell that Christ will save. Many people in Livingston, many people in West Lothian. But we need to go to them with the gospel. And share it with confidence in the completed work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. Sufficient for their sins, however horrendous they may have been. His death is sufficient for them, just as it is for us. And lastly, Paul tells us that as the law came uh, and increased the trespass, sin increased and sin increased because of it, grace abounded all the more. The grace of God constantly outstrips the pain of sin and death. Paul isn't saying here that the law made sin worse. He's saying that it made the depth and the depravity of our sin more clear to us. It was always this bad, we we just didn't see it. I remember hearing a story about uh, the invention and the introduction of electric lighting into, um, into the home and into stately homes. Um, in, in, the, in times past. One of the great problems that occurred when electric lighting was introduced uh, into domestic dwelling places was that the dust and the dirt that had accrued over years became painfully apparent. Now, the electric lighting didn't bring extra dust and dirt into homes. It was just so bright. It exposed dirt wherever it was. And this is what Paul was saying the law does. It makes sin seem very clear to us. So now we know just how insulting our sin is to a holy God, just how big a gulf is fixed between us and him. But it also means that we can see that his grace is more than sufficient. And so we go and live in light of it. In fact, Paul says the grace of God now reigns in us. It controls us. It directs us just like sin and death did before we were saved. And this means the grace of God is enough to save us. It is enough to keep us in that new saved life from now on into eternity. And it is enough to lead us and guide us through our thought life, our speech and our actions so that the grace of Jesus will be seen by all people when they look at us. It will rule us completely and it will be wonderful. Because of the law, we now know just how amazing, how wonderful, how costly, how perfect our salvation truly is. So we can go out into this coming week confident in our faith in Christ and overflowing with praise and thanksgiving to him for all he has done and is doing in us. 
Nothing can stand in the way of someone so marked by the free gift of grace. We ought not to go along with the pattern of our world and deny the reality of death, push it away from us and and ignore it completely. We need to look at it and confront it, recognise what it symbolises, the shame of sin, and see that Christ comes to address that problem in us. And when he does, the free gift of life that he gives completely electrifies us and enlivens us. What fear can death hold to the one who's in Christ, who has conquered sin and death on our behalf? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your word. Yes, Lord, your word makes plain to us how awful sin is, why we die in the first place. Because we have failed, we are part of a failed race, Adam's children. And yet, Lord, this realisation goes hand in hand with the truth that Christ can address this problem, that he can redeem us, save us from our sins and from death itself. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us confidence and courage, that we would face death and know that it holds no fear for us, because Christ has conquered it all, and in the end has drawn us into his family, adopting us. And now that we are in Christ, we are more than conquerors, and so need fear nothing. Lord, send us out this week to share the good news of the gospel, and to worship you in spirit and in truth in everything we do, because of this great reality that we now live by. We thank you, Lord, for your great goodness to us in the sending of your Son to be our Saviour. And we ask that you would bless us richly in him this week. In Jesus' name. Amen.